Welcome to the Night Parlor. Welcome back to the Night Parlor. I'm your host, Joshua Rex. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with author Douglas Ford. Uh, Douglas is the author of The Beast of Vasaria County, a novel released by DT Publishing in 2021. His novella, The Reattachment, appeared in 2019, courtesy of Madness Heart Press. And that same press released Little Lugosi, A Love Story in 2022. His short fiction has appeared in many magazines and anthologies like Generation X, Tales to Terrify, and Dark Moon Digest, with several of his works collected in Ape in the Ring and Other Tales of the Macabre and Uncanny, which was published by Madness Heart Press in 2020. He is also the author of The Infection Party and Other Stories of Dis-Ease, Dis-Ease, <laughs> published in 2022 by DT. Ford lives on the west coast of Florida, just off an exit made famous by a Jack Ketchum short story. Douglas, I'm really excited to uh, have you in the parlor tonight. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, first off, I have to ask, what is the Ketchum story you're referring to in your bio? I'm so glad you asked. I wish more people would ask me that. It's the exit at Toledo Blade Boulevard which when I realized, you know, after reading the Ketchum story, and there's a collection with that title too, I think, you know, when there's, when I realized I'm living near Toledo Blade Boulevard, the exit, and realized that, yeah, these places he's talking about are real, that, that gave me a rush. And I realized I'm in the right place. That's the perfect place for a horror writer. You know, when Jack Ketchum is writing about it, you know, <laughs> I think if I'm not in Transylvania, at least I'm off the exit at Toledo Blade Boulevard. You know what I mean? <laughs> or I'm not, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. And you're funny enough, as uh, we were talking about before the show, my brother actually lived right off Toledo Blade Boulevard before. So how funny that this all uh, just links together like this. Yeah. Small um, world. Sure is. Um, would you talk a little about your path to becoming a writer? Um, have you always been interested in horror and the speculative? Yes. Um, so becoming a writer, I think it, I was a little bit delayed in publishing, um, but I've always wanted to write and I've always written, um, that journey started, I think when I was really young, when, you know, reading Superman, I always thought that, you know, instead of Superman, I thought Clark Kent had the really cool job, you know, he got to be the writer. And, um, you know, as a kid, one of the things I did was with, I had a buddy and we, we started a newspaper in the, in my garage. We would, this is before, you know, I'm, I, I was born in 1969. So I, I grew up without computers and things like that. So we would get, you know, typing paper and carbon paper and we write out newspaper stories on this, this blank white paper. And we go around selling it for a nickel. And I knew I wanted to do that. And of course, you know, I suckered one of my friends into doing that with me. And um, from there, you know, I've always been, you know, I've always been a narrative junkie, uh, whether it's comic books or, you know, discovering Poe for the first time as a kid. It was a little children's book that had this kid version of the fall of the House of Usher in it with these garish 
illustrations and that really sucked me in and and I had the old power power book records and things like that that were always I was always drawn to the horror stuff for sure and the speculative um my my first publication was in the comic the the letters page of DC Comics Presents which nobody I don't know if anybody remembers that title it always teamed up Superman with somebody else and um I remember being in the sixth grade and some kid brought in uh, an issue of DC Comics Presents and I, I immediately looked at the back and I saw it is the letter I wrote to the editor and I was so excited. I wrote this letter entirely hoping they would choose it and publish it. And it was something like, you know, dear editor, you know, DC Comics Presents number 13 was terrible, but I loved it anyway. And I just wrote one sentence and I thought this will get it published. And sure enough, they did. And they prefaced it by saying, this is the strangest letter we've ever received. And I was so proud of that. And I said, look, I'm showing everybody. And they didn't believe it was me. I said, that's my name. I, you know, but, but there was no way that somebody could, could publish somebody that they knew would publish something. And then, you know, my first rejection, I think was at, um, I think I was 16 from the, the Isaac Asimov's magazine of science fiction. I got just, you know, one of those form postcards. And, and like I said, my, my path to actually becoming a writer was, I guess, delayed because I ended up taking a path because I earned a PhD in literature. I worked on, you know, I went to school for a long time and I, I went to graduate school and I, it was in, in many ways, it was kind of compartmentalized the department I was in. You had the creative writers and you had the literature majors and I was always with the literature majors. And I kind of internalized this notion that, you know, I could never be a writer. I had to write about other writers. And so it wasn't until I, I finished the PhD and um, I was looking for a job and I went back, I just, you know, I, I knew, I've always known I wanted to write and I never had the confidence to do it. So I, it was, it wasn't until the early 2000s, I started publishing um, and I started publishing horror right away. Cause that, that's always been my, my jam, you know, it's, it's always been my genre. And um, I think I, you know, I can blame my parents for that because my, my parents are in, in a lot of ways, they're, they're going to be horrified if I tell this story. But one of the things they used to do is they let me they would let me stay up late all the time and, and watch whatever I wanted to. So I'd stay up. And like I said, I was born in 1969. So I, I, I was coming in at the end of the monster kid thing, the kind of the monster kid movement. So I, I you know, I got to experience creature features and the horror host thing. And, and so I would stay up late watching like Son of Frankenstein or something like that, some universal movie. And. I would have to walk back to my bedroom through this dark hallway, which, you know, as a kid, I imagined just being this long, dark hallway and just, and my parents still live in this house. And now I realize how short that hallway is. But what my parents would do, this is where I, I can attribute, you know, credit them for making me the person I am today. They would hide in the hall, in the rooms, in the dark and jump out at me and scare me because they knew I had to walk back. But, you know, that's, that's like, you know, that's such a rush. And I think, and I've told this story before to other people that I think I'm chasing that feeling, you know, that's, that's why I write what I write. I'm still, I still want to be jumped at it in the hallway, you know? <laughs> right. So that's, that's kind of part of the, a lot of the, the, you know, in a, a disjointed path as it is, that's kind of the path I took. Hmm. I love uh, that you're talking about the, 
you're doing these pieces on an old typewriter and that because yeah. uh, I was talking to somebody at work the other day about being sort of on that generational hinge. You know, I'm born in 1980. So, I mean, cell phones were not ubiquitous at all when I was in high school. In fact, I think if anyone had one, it was literally just to call, make a phone call. There's no texting or anything really going on there, at least not in my tiny area of Ohio. Um, but it's, it's funny because that notion of growing up with typewriters and things yeah. or as, you know, it's literally just handwriting that, that you don't have any sort of word processing. If you're on a computer, you are on a computer at school and there's a computer lab and there's a whole program and process you're going through and it's all DOS and, and it's just a different universe. And, uh, you know, to talk to you know, people that I don't know were born, like my sister, for instance, was born in 96. I mean, this whole idea of talking to her about the correction ribbon on typewriters, or if you were lucky to have correction ribbon, you know, if you, you know, didn't have to use whiteout or whatever, uh, it's just so foreign. And it's, uh, yeah. it's I, I love it though. I love that there's, I'm really happy that I was born at that time where I got to experience those aspects too. Cause there was also something about punching out those stories on, on a right. typewriter like that too. That's when it felt like finished copy too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I had an old, my parents had an old manual typewriter they let me work on. And, and I, you know, I, I, I just wish I could apologize to the editor at Isaac Asimov. who I sent that story to because, you know, I, I, I did everything I thought I was supposed to do. You know, I read all the guidelines and I, you know, I was a teenager and I thought, you know, and I was just, you know, buzzing from reading, you know, writers like Lucius Shepard and 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 things like that, who I, st I still love. And so I thought, I, I want to do this too. I've got to do this. And so I would, you know, get the carbon paper and I would, I would do multiple copies while I'm typing and, 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 you know, did the self-addressed stamped envelope. And I tell my students now, I, I make sure that my students at least know what the self-addressed stamped envelope means, you know, the, the acronym. And um, even though they never probably never have to worry about it with their 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 submissions, but um, you know, I just I remember getting that postcard and just being so deflated, like oh, they're not taking it, you know. But um, I'm kind of I'm still that was you know that's part of the journey. So yeah, you persevered, Doug, and that had to be really bolstering getting something a letter like that uh, in D.C. My gosh, that must have been. Oh, that was a rush. Yeah. That, that talk about, you know, chasing another feeling. It's like, oh, I got something published. Look at that. <laughs> Amazing. Well, speaking of your students, um, you're a professor at the State College of Florida. So I'm sure that your teaching and writing inform each other to some degree. Uh, but I'm wondering how deep that connection is. Uh, so do you find that there's a sort of symbiosis between your writing and teaching? Or are they sort of separate universes, as it were? No, I would say they're very close universes. And um, I I teach, like you said, at a, a state college in Florida. It's called the State College of Florida. And uh, it's a two-year college. So the students I get are largely, they're, they're two-year, you know, AA students. And I, I don't, you know, they're not English majors, most of them, or, you know, or have any major yet. But I'm, I'm fortunate in that I get to teach a class on horror literature. So it's really, I get to, you know, I use Dark Descent, the David Hartwell anthology, and I I, I teach the woman in black and, mm -hmm. you know, introduce them to stories like The New Mother and, and, and um, you know, Clyde Barker's Dread. And um, so in a way that that part of it certainly informs my writing, getting to, to, to watch students and experience, you know, for students, it's the first time they're reading something like Dread or, or um, um, The Swords by Robert Aikman. And 
you know, getting to see their reaction to it, enjoying it with them and being able to talk about it with them. Um, it reinvigorates me because I, you know, you know, a lot of them don't read, but they love horror and they love the fantastic. And sometimes I get to show them how cool it is <laughs> to read the stuff in, you know, print and, and, and as a written text and that, that ignites me too. And, um, you know, I have that experience. I use, I teach a short story class too, where I use uh, the Vandermeer's anthology, The Weird. And that's a lot of fun. And I found that students have really enjoyed kind of, you know, interfacing with literature through through horror because it's it's the it's a literature that, that you're supposed to feel something and and you know that a lot of times they don't know what they're supposed to feel when they read something and and horror you know it's kind of it's there on you know not necessarily on the surface but it's it it's supposed to evoke a feeling and so experiencing them that that with them I think it feeds my own writing when I write something you know thinking about that kind of experience. Um, I also teach creative writing and I have a creative writing club. And um, this is one of the ways I get a lot of my writing done because it's great. I have a student who is the president and I'm just the advisor and um, he'll, he'll do free writing days. He'll say, okay, we're going to write for 30 minutes. And that's when I, you know, I take out my yellow pad, whatever draft I have going on and I can squeeze it into a work day and get some stuff done. Um, so and and it's fun to listen to them read their stuff and then sometimes I read them what I'm writing and and some in some cases like with um Little Lagosi is one of my um more recent publications it's a novella from Madness Heart Press I read them parts of Little Lagosi as I was writing that and they 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 were in the first audience of that and it was fun you know listening to their reactions to it and and um and it, it helped they actually helped me too you know, with, you know, revising certain sections. So there's definitely a symbiosis, I would say, a strong, strong symbiosis between the teaching and the writing. Um, although I, you know, I'm in Florida too. So it, it could, sometimes it's a bit frustrating being a professor in Florida and uh, beyond the scope of this discussion, um, but it's there, so. And it must be wonderful to watch the students uh, to watch them sort of un be able to understand how to unlock metaphor in some of these stories too. I mm -hmm. think a lot of people just think of horror as it's a horror story and there's a lot of blood and there's a lot of slashing and maybe there are some ghosts or whatever, but a story like Swords uh, by Aikman is so draped in metaphor and there's so much interesting metaphor in that piece. Uh, there's a lot that, again, you can unlock. So that, that must be really rewarding to watch watch the lights go on in that way with with your students. Yeah, well, one of the things that we talk about in in the during the, the the course is the difference between horror and terror, which of course has been unpacked a lot by different people, starting with Anne Radcliffe, right? And um, but but one of the the things we talk about is is St. Yashi, and I I think Yashi's been on your show, right? Um, Yashi, he's he's got this great comment where he says, you know, it's it's a paradox. I'm paraphrasing, but he says it's a paradox to say this, but the purpose of horror fiction is not to horrify. And to kind of explore that in the realm of academia with students who are not necessarily English majors, they're they're civilians, you know, and and to 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 explore that with them is it's exciting. It's fun. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that Joshi quote. I love that. That, that that's fantastic. Yeah. 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 
speaking of horror, I guess more specifically, uh, I want to kind of switch gears here and just ask you, I, I've been asking a few people on the show this, and I hadn't really talked about it with some some of my prior guests, but uh, it's sort of a fun question. Uh, what sort of horror film do you prefer? Uh, now, I guess uh, more specifically, is there a certain era that you're partial to or a certain style, et cetera? Well, I, I was kind of weaned on the universal stuff from the 30s and 40s, but I would say my strong, I'm, I'm most strongly drawn to 70s and 80s. Um, that was, those were my formative years. Those were in many cases, the forbidden fruit because I wasn't allowed to watch, you know, I was too young to go see R-rated movies. And, um, you know, I'd have to see them under, you know, find somebody who had an illicit copy or, or cable really, it was cable, you know, a cable connection that let me watch Humanoids from the Deep, you know, something like that, something disreputable. Um, but I'm I'm still very much, a, I'm a fan of the genre. I love the genre and, and um, I, I like a lot of eras and a lot of different styles and a lot of dif different modes. Um, I'm maybe most drawn to European horror cinema. Um, I, um, I, I love Argento. Um, I even watch the bad Argento movies, um, like his version of Phantom of the Opera, which I find something watch. Most people don't find anything watchable in it, but I, I, I can find something watchable in it. Um, I, I love Fulci's, um, um, his, his Seven Gates of Hell trilogy with the beyond and, and uh, um, City of the Living Dead and, and the House Beyond the Cemetery. I think those are just wonderfully surreal and strange beyond. I mean, they're famous for the gory scenes, but I, I think there's just there's a wonderful surrealism to them that I I find delightful. Um, I love the strange dubbing. Um, the novel you mentioned, The Beast of Vissaria County, is my homage to um, European horror films. Um, there's a moment in that where the character, the main character talks, Maggie talks about how she watch, she watches a horror host and she describes how he, he shows movies like The Blind Dead and how the dubbing becomes a kind of, it's, it's like a transmission from another world. And I, I often feel that way with dub films. I, I don't think it's strange or awkward. I don't find it off-putting or something to make fun of. I think it's part of the texture of the experience that I enjoy. And, um, you know, the beast, speaking of the Beast of Vissaria County, um, that is, the, the, the character in that is is based on Paul Nashi, who was the, uh, the Wolfman in a series that, I don't know if, do you know these films at all? Have you ever heard of Paul Nashi at all? I have not, no. Most people have it. It's okay, but um, but he he did he did something really interesting and in starting with a movie called The Mark of the Wolfman, that was um, in a, in the United States. It was Frankenstein's Bloody Terror because I think it was Sam Sherman retitled it to have a more marketable title, even though it had nothing to do with Frankenstein. It, it's basically a werewolf story, you know, and 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 originally he was going to have Lon Chaney he wanted Lon Chaney to play the part and Lon Chaney was too old he had throat you know he I think he had throat cancer at the time and died soon after uh so Nashi who was a former weightlifter from Spain his real name was Jacinto Molina he he cast himself and he's he's a very stocky guy but very there's something very charismatic about him so he's and he's got this 
dynamic werewolf character in this. These are Spanish, Spanish horror movies. So he made that one. And then his character is Valdemar Daninsky. And he recycles the Valdemar Daninsky character in movie after movie, re, re, um, revising the origin, revising this, the setting. And some of them get quite wild. He's got, you know, he, he'll have a movie that has Elizabeth Bathory somehow involved in Valdemar Daninsky's origin in one movie. And then in another, the setting becomes Japan and Valdemar Daninsky had actually made a trip to feudal Japan and had been involved in sam with samurais. And these movies, you know, they go from the, you know, they started in the late sixties and he was making them all the way through the early nineties with um, the last, I one of the last ones he did, he actually went a little further. He made one more before he died, but there it's fat. The cycle's fascinating. And the way this this character just repeat reappears and and changes over time, and I'm not trying to say they're high art. They're not high art. They're 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 exploitation cinema. They're full of all sorts of disreputable elements that most people frown, you know, reasonable people frown upon, but I don't. And so I'm I'm just very inspired by this, not the the character necessarily, but him, and his. The, the way he 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 was obviously a, loved what he was doing and i i found that very inspiring and so in a lot of ways you know i i call the beast of Asaria county a mixtape and it it largely is it's it's southern gothic but it's also a it's also my attempt to kind of meld the southern gothic with the european horror you know film at the same time and whether or not that works i guess depends upon the reader but i had fun doing it yeah, very interesting. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about one of the stories in uh, The Infection Party and other stories of disease, which I want to talk about next. Uh, I'm trying to recall how to say the the, uh, the, the character's last name. It was a real person. Uh, Brad Darif's Tears. Is that, am I yeah. saying it right? Okay. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was really, it's interesting to hear you talk about film because I, I was uh, really intrigued by that story. Um, I mean, it was such an odd title and then digging into it, I, of course, it, it just did not go where I thought it was going to go at all, which uh, uh, I'm going to get to in a minute here about uh, your work specifically. But, um, you know, framing that, I want to talk about your collection, The Infection Party and other stories of Disease, D-I-S dash E-A-S-E. I want to make sure the people at home know how to say that. Uh, but this book uh, possesses in spadefuls, uh, this quality which has become my favorite when it comes to dark fiction, and that is unpredictability. Uh, so I was speaking with the author Adam Galaski the other day about this specifically, and you know, in particular, how wonderful it is when you come across an author whose voice you love and trust, uh, most importantly, it makes the journey of the book so much fun because no matter where the author's going, the reader's along for the ride 100%, at least in my case, that's how I feel. Um, so that's precisely how I felt about this book, uh, you know, from the brilliant first tale, The Infection Party, which for me was reminiscent of the very best Charles Beaumont. Again, we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, him later on uh, to the deliciously bizarre concluding piece, uh, What Aunt Kay Brought <laughs> and the whole licking of the towels, which uh, I hope that intrigues you because that was that was just <laughs> um, So you've managed to write about disease and apocalypse in a fresh way, uh, which is no small accomplishment. And of course, many of these stories have appeared previously in other literary venues. 
But I'm wondering, did the idea for this book arise uh, during the pandemic? So actually, it the the, I, the the title story did come out of the pandemic. The infection party was definitely a pandemic story. But as you mentioned, the uh, stories themselves, you know, range over several years. And um, the um, the the story you mentioned, the wonderfully bizarre, uh, what Aunt, with the towels, what Aunt Kay brought was actually a post 9-11 story. It's actually one of the older stories in the book that, you know, I had no foresight in a global pandemic actually occurring in 2020. Um, so the organization for the book kind of happened by accident organically. Um, I realized what some of my preoccupations were, things I didn't realize about myself that that I realized during a pandemic, how terrified I'd been of this co- very kind of thing happening. And, and um, so it, it was interesting when I, the stories that I, had not collected in my first collection, which was Ape in the Ring, the stories that I was thinking about putting together just kind of happened to to organize themselves in the way they did around this theme. And so it's been fun listening to people say, wow, this really organized, you know, the, the themes is, is, is disease and pandemics. And and I, it was almost an accident. And so um, I, I wanted, I thought disease would be a good way to describe the stories themselves because they're not all, you know, about literal diseases. But the idea of disease is something that I thought ran through everything in here in some some form or fashion. And then, um, you know, it was like I said, it was a coincidence that, of course, you know, you have a there's a story called Try on a Mask that that involves a stricken child. In fact, there's two stories that bear that theme a tale in the barroom gothic also has that going into it um and you mentioned the towels and and uh what aunt k brought which is one of my my favorite lines i've ever written you know the opening line to that story is just so much when once i came up with that opening line i realized i had the rest of the story <laughs> um so yeah well certainly uh, now, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, you know, not every story in this collection is about sickness, uh, you know, hence the disease delineation in the title. Uh, and, and I was really thrilled, as I mentioned earlier, that I was uh, you know, honored to share the TOC with uh, Night Script 7 with you. And, you know, of course, uh, Clint Smith, uh, we're going to talk about here shortly, too, and, and you know, several other fantastic authors. Um, you know, one of the, my favorite stories from the Infection Party is A Tale in the Barroom Gothic, uh, which blends what I'm guessing is probably the eerie swamps of Viseria County. Of course, I haven't yeah. seen those, but they were pretty eerie in the story. <laughs> um, <laughs> some Halloween bar chatter uh, and disturbing fairy tale-esque elements, uh, which were just uh, astonishing. <laughs> they were so impressive. Into a contemporary Gothic tale that has, um, you know, one of the most interesting quotes I've read in a really long time. And I'm going to read it here for our listeners. It's, houses keep nothing out and nothing in. Now, the notion of permeability in regard to the places we build to keep out the world or to keep us safe inside is a fascinating observation, particularly as it refers to disease and more specifically, you know, of course, the past three years. Um, so for me, this line is terrifying because it's really the truth, I think. Uh, it's one of those axioms that sort of breaks down our ontological notions of security and reminds us that we're you know, never truly safe, even around our own homes. 
So I guess my question for you, Doug, after this long and hopefully coherent ramble is, uh, do you feel that the stories in this collection are bound to themes of safety and sort of our poignant attempts to provide it for ourselves and one another? Yeah, I, I think certainly, I mean, you, you put it very eloquently and probably more eloquently than I could, that that is, I think, at the heart of most of the stories. Um, I'm fascinated by families. Um, I'm fascinated when families self-destruct and, and, and are not successful in providing that security. Um, I think horror is most successful when it puts us in the position of a child and knowing that, that that sense of security you rely upon is no longer there. And I, I tend to gravitate towards st stories like that myself. And the, the domestic structure, the thing that, that is supposed to, especially in a, as Americans, you know, the, the, you, you have this preached to you that the, fam the family is sacred and, and that it is the, the foundation of everything wonderful and amazing about us. And I, I'm, I'm fascinated when the cracks show and, you know, of course the cracks is where things can wiggle in, you know, squirmy things can wiggle in and unfortunate occurrences can happen. And if you look at the notes, I, I, I did something that I hope isn't too self-indulgent. And I, I asked my publisher before I did this, if she was okay with it. And she said, go for it. Um, I did write notes about each story and I thought, because I've always enjoyed reading collections where authors have talked about, well, where did the story come from? What, what was, what was happening? And um, I, I did, one of the things that you can see a thread is that these stories tend to come from a personal place. And that's when I know a story is working or not is when I can, when I, when I can feel it. Um, it's kind of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, has, has this great line where he talked about when he was writing 100 Years of Solitude, how, how he struggled to write 100 Years of Solitude and how he realized, you know, he's he kind of went inside a cottage somewhere and worked on this book. He brought a you know a thousand cartons of cigarettes or something. And he said, what he realized when he, he finally got it right is when he remembered how his mother used to tell him stories. And he said, I had to believe in them the way my mother would believe in these stories, or his grandmother, I should say. His grandmother would tell him stories with a straight face because she believed these stories. And he had to believe them too. And that's, I think that's something I've kind of reached for myself as a writer. I've, I've got to believe the story. And hence, it's got to come from some kind of personal place. Even something as weird as Brad Dorff's Tears, that thank you for mentioning that one. Um, and um, we are the gorillas, which, you know, you mentioned we're, we're in night script seven together. And that story also was, you know, was based on a, a um, um, you know, it, it, there was a, there was a teacher I knew when I was in junior high who had a class he called the gorillas and there, there was one girl in it. And that's always stuck with me. And, and that's another place where there's supposed to be a sense of security where some, nothing is supposed to get in the classroom. And I was always that 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 idea that he would call them the gorillas would always haunted me and stuck with me for some reason. I knew I had to write a story. And that was another one where I had I had to find the line. I had to find the opening line and the rest of it started to follow. Of course, the opening line is we are the gorillas uh, told from the perspective of uh, the one girl in that class who something horrible happens to her. Or I don't know, maybe it's wonderful. It's both 
horrible and wonderful what happens during the course of this story because she she finds a sense of belonging and also of course transforms and and you know i don't want to ruin it but um but i i think did i answer your question oh yeah 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 certainly okay. uh I, I love what you were saying about the the uh, sort of divergent paths that that character is kind of taking at the end of where the grill is and yeah yeah of course i don't want to ruin it for anybody either but there's a there's a sort of liberation to that that uh you know getting get back to that notion of metaphor like we were talking about with your students and that uh you can do these things with speculative fiction like you can't do with other forms yeah. of fiction and that's it's it's so magical in that way and it's so powerful and uh I don't know, even with like really cliche tropes, you can twist them around and you can do things with them. Um, I, I find that it's it's just sort of inexhaustible in that way. And I love that aspect about uh, about speculative fiction in particular. I mean, you just, you never really know what's coming. For me, I love that as I mentioned quite plainly earlier, I think. <laughs> I, I often don't know where the story is going when I'm writing it. I'm very much a pantser. Um, and it, the, the fun is if I, if I can get to the, the end of a story and finish it, it's because something had hooked me in telling it that I needed to know where it ended. I needed to know what happened. And Kayleen, the narrator of Mirror of the Gorillas, is, is, is one of my favorite narrators. I I hear, I could hear her voice. I could hear her talking. You know, I'm making myself sound schizophrenic. But, you know, she really did. Her voice made that story for me and um, made it, you know, if it's successful for anybody, I think it's because of her. Um, I'm talking about her like she's a real person separate from my brain, but um, I think that's what we end up doing, how we end up thinking about these characters sometimes. Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, I remember the first time I had that moment where a character said something, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, like I'm going along and I'm thinking about this. And then I got to a point where one character goes to the next and all of a sudden the other character says something and it was that first time of that sort of really eerie disembodied feeling that it's like someone else yeah. is speaking to you and you and you do you have sort of that schizophrenic moment where it's strange and and when a character for some reason comes along fully developed like that uh yeah it's it's a strange feeling i totally know what you mean and you can really feel that with kayleen in that story uh that that does that feels that that just feels like that person wrote it um and again you know a real great strength of your fiction and just one more uh thing i want to add on to what you were talking about on this subject I loved the notes at the end, especially the way you wrote them, because I really enjoy that too, when you can get it, get the behind yeah. the scenes as it were, you know, uh, sort of like the the extra credit stuff or whatever on, on, a, on a DVD or, a, a, you know, I guess nobody has DVDs anymore, but whatever, the bonus stuff. I do. Um, <laughs> all right, good, me too. We'll, we'll pretend like that, that's just the norm still. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that you wrote it kind of like an essay. I thought that was really interesting. It wasn't like just necessarily a block and then here's the story block. Like you kind of threaded everything through. And so it felt oh, like uh, everything you were doing, like you were sort of describing how these things really tie in and there were there were personal elements. So, uh, you know, it, in just all regards, it's, it's kind of the best of the best for me because I, I love to see, you know, that originality and that un unexpected feeling, but also where the author's coming from and, you um, and, you know, you got to get that behind the scenes glance at the end and, into the author's mind. So, yeah, just really effective all around in that regard. I I hadn't thought of the connection to DVDs because I do, I still love physical media. And part of the reason I love physical media is I love the special features. I like to know, I love the commentaries. I, I like to know, well, what, what were people thinking about? What happened here? How, what were the problems that happened in this scene? And, <laughs> and I'm such a nerd for the, you know, I don't belong to any book clubs. 
but I'm such a nerd for, you know, the, you know, paperbacks that have the book club stuff in the back. I always have to read where, where are the discussion questions, what, you know, and it's, I don't, I don't know if anybody else does this, if anybody <laughs> looks at those, but I do. Speaking of this collection, uh, since we're talking about it, uh, what would you like to read for us today, Doug? I, I don't know if you were going to read something from um, the Infection Party or something yes. else. Too, or... I'll, I'll read the beginning of Officer Baby Boy Blue. Um, we'll try that. Should I start in? Just start in on that? Yeah, okay. yeah. Go, go ahead. All right. So here we go. I almost gouged out my own eye at a young age, but not, not in the usual way you hear about, not with fireworks and certainly not with a weapon. I never broke rules, so nothing that glamorous. Instead, it happened with a model kit, the plastic sort requiring a special sort of cement that came with a warning label about how sniffing it could cause brain damage. I never, never did anything like sniff glue either. I didn't want to face consequences and I certainly didn't want brain damage. What kind of future could I expect with brain damage? But I nearly gouged out my own eye with a hobby knife, an exacto blade, just a slip of the hand and the blade pierced the skin just an inch below my left eye. Just imagine if the blade went into my eye and didn't stop there, but continued going and into my brain, a horrid thought. The kit I worked on was the Frankenstein monster, not the kind other kids put together like a battleship or a bomber but a monster out of a black and white film lumbering away from a gravestone, arms outstretched. To remove the plastic pieces, I used my exacto blade, just like the instructions suggested, and somehow I still managed to have an accident. Just one careless slip, and the point of the blade sliced a two-inch two incision like a third set of eyelids. A mental fog prevents me from explaining how it happened exactly, but I distinctly remember the panic trip to the hospital and the chaos in the emergency room. The chaos didn't happen right away though, only after a very long period of time in the waiting room with my mother holding one of, this, one of several paper towels to my face in an attempt to stop the bleeding. It came as a relief when someone finally showed me to a bed where a doctor would examine me. They told my mother she would have to wait and the nurse took me back and helped me up to the bed smiling at me as she closed the curtain halfway, leaving plenty of space for me to see the doctors and nurses moving about the floor. Then pandemonium broke loose. To this day, I don't know the exact nature of the crime or emergency, but the facility began filling with wounded policemen and burned firemen on gurneys, many of them still wearing their emergency gear, heavy coats for the firemen and armored vests for the policemen. At first, just three or four of them, but their count steadily rose until every visible gurney and every visible bed held some horribly injured emergency worker. I don't even know where they came from. Many of them screamed and groaned, sounds made more terrible by the glimpses of blood and burns covering their skin. No one remained still, the whole area in constant movement, a flurry of confusion as injured firemen and policemen continued to pour into the hospital. Just one person moved slowly, taking his time and gazing about with what looked like curiosity and fascination. I could see him through the half-closed curtain, a police officer strolling casually toward the bed on which I lay. As he came closer, I could see he wore mirrored sunglasses, even though we were indoors. Despite the glasses, he looked friendly enough, and he even smiled as he walked into my curtain area. I hesitated before returning the smile. I wanted someone to come tell me everything would soon be okay, prefer preferably a doctor or nurse, but I suppose the police officer would have to do. When he approached, I saw how the mirrored glasses filled his face 
and worse, I could see my own reflection in the lenses. I looked horrible, so bloody and ragged. The wound on my face gaped like the mouth of a dead fish. The officer shook his head and made a tisking sound. I had to look away, not wanting to see my reflection anymore. It looks bad, he said, as if I needed confirmation of what I myself could see. Then he added, but it could be worse. I almost turned my head for an explanation, but I couldn't face my own reflection. No, really, he said, it could be worse. I'll show you. Look. That voice had real authority, so it compelled me. I knew I had to look. So I did. I turned in time to see the officer lift his sunglasses, an act that made me thankful at first. Thank God, make that awful image of myself go away. Then I saw what the sunglasses hid beneath his own face. His left eye, just a folded mass of flesh, held shut by a line of grotesque metal stitches. Had I pr any presence of mind, I might have made an association to the model kit I left unfinished in my bedroom, the Frankenstein monster. I couldn't think of that for quite some time, just as I couldn't make another association until years later, when I would see the puckered folds of a woman's labia for the first time. At this moment, seeing the eye stitch closed, only horror existed, and I couldn't turn away, no matter how badly I wanted to do so. This was another one of my favorites from the collection. The, the way that cop came into that room right at that moment with all that disaster happening, you know, I mean, at this moment, it could be like death walking in, right? Or something, death accompanying all these people. But it's it felt like something worse than death. It felt like this personification of danger or uh, potential, sort of, sort of the potential of tragedy, um, like personified right there. And it's actively happening and it's actively coming to see you. And, and, it's, and it's seeing you because you were right on this cusp and you were injured and you were right on the threshold of maybe even putting your eye out. But then it gets even darker and even stranger. And as uh, the story goes on and this character is moving through his life, uh, I, again, I, I love the denouement of the story and I'm not going to get into too much Thank detail, you. but um, the fact that the, the cop sort of makes this reappearance in this strange way uh, you yeah, know, definitely one of my favorites from, and I'm so glad you read that one, Doug. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you refer to him as death because I didn't think about this, but I love, you know, the poem by E.E. E. Cummings, Buffalo Bills, mm -hmm. you know, do you know that line, you know, how, how do you like your blue eyed boy now, Mr. Death? Is mm -hmm. how that ends. And I don't know, maybe I was channeling that somehow. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, like I said, I, I think it just felt worse than death. And, and that was that was really eerie. Like what else, what other sorts of, uh, you know, again, personifications of these tragedies could be walking into your life at some point like that? Uh, <laughs> one, just wonderful. Um, now, you, you dedicated this book to the memory of Shirley Jackson and uh, Charles Beaumont. Now, most people in speculative fiction in the community, a lot of readers, they've heard, of course, of Shirley Jackson, the you know, legend. But Beaumont seems to be one of those names lurking on the periphery. A lot of times I'll talk to writers and I'll mention Beaumont and they'll be like, who's that? And I'll be like, oh, Twilight Zone, et cetera. Oh, and they'll kind of know him. But um, but yeah, I don't think they've really spent time with his work. In my humble opinion, uh, he should be spoken of in the same you know, lofty circles as Lovecraft, Barker, Aikman, you know, et al. Uh, would you talk about Beaumont a bit, uh, specifically what you like about his work and the influence it's had on your own? I'll be delighted to, because I agree, <laughs> Beaumont, Beaumont need, needs to be remembered with Matheson and Jackson, and they, they were, you know, they were contemporaries, and I, I think there's a really strong connection between Jackson's work and Beaumont's, and thank you for 
noticing the dedication to, to Jackson and Beaumont and and in some ways, the the um, dedication to Beaumont is is even more appropriate considering his life when he he you know he died at I think he was 30, 38 or thirty nine and he died as something we still his his death is a horror story we, he 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 aged rapidly and and my understanding is they we still don't know exactly what he he suffered from he he went into this awful mental decline and um, he. Um, he may have had Pick's disease. He may have had Alzheimer's, maybe some combination. But he apparently he looked like a 90-year-old man when he died at the age of 38. But his his work is just amazing. And I, I kind of sense you were going to ask me this question about Beaumont. And so I was I was rereading some Beaumont before this. And I just I I get there's a feeling you get from reading Beaumont. Uh the hunger, this the the his his evocation of loneliness is so powerful and his work from i mean the stories that influenced me are you know the, the 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 howling man of course which was a twilight zone episode but when you read it the story itself it, there's so much more i'm not saying that the twilight episode has lacks depth but the story has so much more context and it's so much richer and um, he's got a story called the, the the Crooked. I think it's called the Crooked Man. I've got my mm -hmm. copy of the Hunger here. Uh, the Crooked Man, which is this, it, it's. I think some would argue the Eye of the Beholder is a loose adaptation of the Crooked Man, which is really about sexuality, and um, how it he he turns he he imagines a future or a, this dystopia where being heterosexual is illegal and it's really about you know discrimination it's about hatred of of of, of people who are gay and the story the what the turn the story takes is amazing for the time it was written in and and then there's a story called um miss do you know miss gentabel do you know that one mm -hmm. Oh my God! I mean, Miss Gentabel is most ter one of the most terrifying monsters. I mean, she's a person, but she's a monster. She's one of the most terrifying monsters in literature. And that that story and it and for it that came from a, apparently a personal place for him too. In some ways, apparently, it's about his mother. Um, you know, I, we shouldn't obviously we shouldn't read an author's work too autobiographically. But there does seem to be some interesting parallels with Beaumont's life, and and how he was raised by his mother, and this this <laughs> monstrous creation he has. Who who I, again? I want to ruin it because people need to read this. He, he's his stuff has come back into print a little bit. With mm -hmm. Valen Valencourt has the hunger reprinted, and that that is an important collection in horror literature. It needs to be read. The stuff in here is it's still powerful. Um, the the story of the hunger is another story about loneliness and about a woman who is I, I don't know if it's accurate to say she's being stalked by a serial killer, an escaped lunatic from an insane asylum, or that he's she's stalking him. And but it's ultimately about loneliness. It's about not feeling connected. And that's something you you get in all his work, and it resonates with me. And I, I thought it was interesting that 
you saw the infection party. The title story is is the Beaumont homage. When, whereas I think of um, I think of Try on a Mask is the the Beaumont mm -hmm. homage or the Halloween Mummy more so. For me, the the infection party was very much my Jackson. <laughs> not and you're right it's like we at this point anybody who's writing dark fiction or weird fiction just we just need to start calling shirley jackson mom because she, <laughs> she's all she's the mom to all of us in so many ways that but to me it's i get the same feeling reading beaumont that i get reading jackson mm. um so i'm really glad you asked me about that i'm glad you asked me about beaumont yeah it's just so exciting to see someone that's exciting about or excited about beaumont uh i, beaumont. I, I was just speaking to uh, another author tyler james a uh, friend of mine fellow author about uh beaumont and he he hadn't read him and i sent him the collection and, and you know he just loved it. i sent him perchance to dream uh oh that's England, great which is uh, if anyone's looking up uh, you know the hunger of course anything you pick up from him is great perchance to dream is a great one that's that's a good yeah. survey sort of all sorts of stuff uh with the story perchance to dream also was a twilight zone episode that uh fritzchen in it which is an amazing that's apparently going to be adapted into a film i can't remember who's doing it um but fritzchen is an amazing story it's a it's a great monster story oh which, absolutely yeah. and the um you know the howling man it's funny you said that, Doug, because I had the same exact feeling reading that, you know, as after watching the Twilight Zone episode, the the devil, when the devil is on the street and looks at the protagonist at that moment, yeah. I really felt like I was looking at the devil in yes. that moment. And it was really, really eerie. Uh, yeah. yeah, he just has this way of, you know, with the best, the best writer, really the best artist do. You know, it's it sort of reminds me of how you know, Rembrandt would sketch just like the necessities, like just what he needed to sketch just to make the picture. But it was enough to make a really rich picture. And it was just a few oh. lines here and there. And there was another one too. I think it's on a Beaumont documentary and I can't recall the title, but it's about vampires. It's about these vampires waking on, on an, during an apocalypse or after an apocalypse. Place of meeting. The, the place of meeting. That's a great one. The place yeah. of meeting. Thank you. That's one of my yeah. favorite Beaumonts. The end of that is so chilling. <laughs> Yes. And it, it really, in a lot of ways, has nothing to do with vampires. I mean, it has everything to do with vampires, you know, as far as, you know, needing, they're necessary yeah. for the story, but it also really has nothing to do with vampires at all. And it also has this really frightening notion of oblivion. Uh, yes. and, you know, memory and oblivion is something I, I like to look at a lot. Um, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a fascinating story in that regard. Um, well, thanks for that discussion on that, Doug. Yeah, that uh, again, that's just it's great to talk about him in that. In that I'll regard. talk about Beaumont all night. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do that again sometime. Yeah. Detailed. Um, one last thing I wanted to mention in closing uh, is this, you know, sort of related phenomenon, you know, to writing. But um, what I like to sort of think of as this authorial, authorial thread, uh, threading between writers. Um, now, for example. You know, I learned your work through the inimitable Clint Smith, uh, you know, discovering Clint's work led me not only to you, Doug, Doug but also to, um, you know, the sensational fiction of David Surface, Gordon B. White, uh, Adam Galaski. Uh, you know, all of these writers possess that wonderful unpredictability I mentioned earlier. And I've loved the work, you know, all of them that I've read from all of these authors, including yourself thus far. Um, so, Clint refers to me as a literary ally. You know, he'll write emails, letters, and, you know, your ally. And I can't think of a better compliment. And I really enjoy that camaraderie, you know, that that 
uh, idea fosters. And I'm wondering, have you also experienced this in your life as a writer, I guess, teacher also, Doug? Uh, does the majority of your networking uh, come from this sort of word of mouth with other writers? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm proud to be part of your network, Josh. Um, I've, I've, I've enjoyed discovering your recent collection, New Monsters. It's amazing. Anybody listening to this should read it. Um, I've also, I've enjoyed, I mean, one of the, the wonderful things about having a writing career is meeting other writers and enjoying their support and supporting them. I, I've been lucky to meet in particular, um, my network includes a couple of really wonderful people I just want to give a shout out to. Uh, one of them is Rebecca Rowland, who is an, uh, an amazing writer and editor. And um, maybe in a few minutes, I'll get a chance to, to uh, say something about her a really exciting anthology she has coming out soon, uh, as well as Holly Ray Garcia, who is just wrote this phenomenal novella called Parachute. And um, she's got some other stuff out there, short stories, a novel called Come Join the Murder. Um, we, we've kind of, we, we've dubbed ourselves Murderer's Row because we, <laughs> we were at AuthorCon recently last year and we had, we were in the back, you know, we were, and we were, our tables were together. We all, we already kind of knew each other online and, and through Facebook and social media, but we really bonded through that experience. And um, it was kind of out of that, that that bonding that that Rebecca came up with the idea to to put together American Cannibal, which is her new mm -hmm. anthology that has some, some just wonderful voices in it. And it's it's really like I said, that's one of the most rewarding thing is is talking to other writers and and enjoying supporting them and um and it and it really feeds you know, your work, it's inspiring. It's inspiring to talk to you and learn about you. And, and Clint, you're right. Clint's, Clint's, Clint is a master. Clint's stuff is just amazing. He's such a sweet guy, you know? And um, so one of the, I mean, one of the really cool things about the horror community and weird fiction and dark fiction is it seems to have the nicest people, you it know, does. It's so like, true. you know, <laughs> and, and it's just, it's a supportive community. And, um, you know, I've really benefited from that. And, and if they're listening, I'm going to say thank you to Holly and Rebecca for really being wonderful supporters and wonderful friends. And, you know, so um, you're right. It's just, I think ally is a great term. Yeah. Well, just lastly, to wrap up, uh, what's next for you? Uh, you know, are you working on anything that you can or would like to share the details of here? I'd love to hear what you're working on. I am. Um, I've actually got a lot going on. Uh, first of all, uh, I mentioned American Cannibal. I have a story coming out, Rebecca Rowland's anthology, American Cannibal. It's a story that imagines a meeting between Ernest Hemingway and a, another really infamous uh, resident of Key West in the 1930s, uh, Carl Tanzler, who is a, uh, somebody who practiced necrophilia. Um, so that, that that's coming out uh, very soon, March 7th. Um, I have a, a short novel. I'm not sure if it's a novella or just a very short novel called The Trick coming out in um, May from Madness Heart Press. Um, and, and I'm excited about that. It's really strange. It's a great, it's a spiritual successor to my novella, Little Lugosi. Um, I have with, with Holly and Rebecca, we have Table for Three coming out this year, which includes another novella called The Last Slaughter that I'm really proud of. 
and that it's going to be a, a, a charity anthology with them. It's going to be great. Um, and I'm working on a chat book for uh, Madness Heart Press called Babel, right? Well, that's the working title. And then I started a novel recently that has doesn't have a title yet. So I there's a lot going on. And then I have another D&T novelette coming out um, called The Dead Cats of Civilization um, later in the year. So a lot of a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, that's that's a lot of work. That's fantastic to hear. Um, and great title, The Dead Cats of Civilization. <laughs> I love that. It's from Conrad. <laughs> it's Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Excellent. <laughs> Well, very, very much look forward to all that new work. Um, Doug, it's been so great chatting with you and getting to know you here. And uh, please go out and check out Doug's work. Uh, the latest piece, as I mentioned, uh, the infection story, the infection party and other stories of disease. Uh, Doug, I hope you'll come back in the future and join me again in the night parlor, talk about your new work. I sure will. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.